0: So, good evening. So again, tonight, Sarah and Aaron and I will offer some poems and prose written by other people and ourselves also, possibly. Who knows what could happen? Um, and I know that some of you are coming expecting a Dharma talk, so I'll give a 30-second Dharma talk. <laughs> um, The idea for having poems um, coming at you tonight um, is really just to remind us that um, language is a really important part of the spiritual path. And um, a lot of times we think of poetry as self-expression, and I don't want to speak for Aaron or Sarah, but I have never thought of poetry as a form of self-expression. And I've also never thought of poetry as arranging words to make beautiful um, sculptures, either. Um, For me, poetry has always been a way of clarifying language um, in a very deep way. And um, as we all know, especially those of us that have a meditation practice, uh, language can be imprisoning um, and it can also be a source of freedom. And when um, life is hard and when things are difficult um, the tendency in the mind is to think that the world is wrong and that something in the world is off Um, but actually um, usually it's not so much the world that's wrong or ever um, but rather our description of the world is wrong and our representation of the world is wrong and sometimes all we need is a good sentence um, to reorient us and um, sometimes there is a way that we let go of a viewpoint and just because the way we construct the world with language internally changes suddenly the world changes and um, In a way, the practice of poetry is basically just to go so deep into the world that um, we get clear and clear about the ways we're describing it, so that we can get clear and clear in ourselves. And so poetry is a spiritual practice, and a spiritual practice is also a poetic practice. Um, For the problem of suffering, we need as many good sentences as we can find. Um, so even if you're not interested in language um, it's really important to you um, because when language is unconscious there's suffering and when we make conscious the way that we tell ourselves the stories that we tell about our lives and about one another then um, we wake up And so one of the nice things about poetry is it tries to weave through the very kind of analytic and uh, sometimes um, um, reactive nature of our sentence making um, so that the world opens up a little again. And we may have a different way of looking at the world that can inspire us um, and hopefully uh, change our lives. I don't know who said it but, I, I forgot who said it, but something, there's a translator and I can't remember who it was, says, you know, what good is poetry if it can't change your life? Do you know who said that? No? I can't
1: that remember Okay, someone said it.
0: It wasn't me. If it can't change the
2: world?
0: If it can't change the world? Yeah. I what good it, is poetry if it can't I change the that, world? that. Yeah. Okay. Well, if you can find out who said that, then you can have a uh, free yoga class pass to any place that has yoga class passes of your choice.
1: Is
2: it Milos? Possibly. Oh no! I didn't. You can still
0: get the. So you know when your life is difficult new ways of representing the world are always available and um, even for the experienced meditator um, we never get beyond language there are always times where in meditation practice we can reach states and hopefully if you practice a lot they can be sustained where there is no language um, but those are temporary and then we come back into this world of relationship and of language and it's helpful to have Um, clarity um, in the way we represent uh, ourselves to ourselves and the world to ourselves and so on. Because language never stops. As much as we'd like it to sometimes. Yapping, yapping, yapping. (laughs) So, Sarah, do you want to start?
1: Sure, I'd like to start. Um... I brought, when Michael asked me to, to do this tonight, um, the, most interesting, the most interesting part of the task was figuring out what kind of poems Michael was asking for, <laughs> what the topic of tonight was. And, um, and I went into researching it first, I think the wrong way. Um, because I didn't actually understand what the question was when I tried to pin it down. So what I ended up doing was just going through my the poem, the collection of poems that I have, and a few prose pieces that have changed my life in some way. And then after reading all of them, I saw that they're all about the same thing. And then I reread the email and I realized it's all about the same thing. And this is what it's all about. So, um, as a writer. I came to this thinking about writing as a spiritual practice, Um, but that's, I don't think, the necessary perspective whatsoever to appreciate anything that I'm going to read tonight. I hope not, anyway. Um, I'm going to start with this prosy piece, um, because it feels like a good place to start. It's a lecture... Uh, um, titled "Poetry and the Sacred," given by Don Demansky, who's um, a BC poet. Oh no, he's a he's from the East Coast actually, but he was giving the lecture um, at Vancouver Island University, and I'll just read a very short part of the lecture. It takes a great deal of effort to see what's in front of you, whether that's a stone, a mountain, or another person. After much watching. After much witnessing of the metamorphosis from object to presence, you find that everything is self-luminous. If you observe something long enough, its being comes forth. The is-ness of the thing is made manifest. You end up feeling the sacredness of its presence in time and space. What you're experiencing is the being of what has been attended by your sight and patience. What you're feeling is a connective pulse, the conjunction of seer and seen. The prime ritual of the sacred. Do you to jump
0: in there? I chose a piece about Bardo's greeted um, by Gary Snyder. When I was a kid, um, I used to hang out on the railroad tracks on DuPont Street and smoke cigarettes and Uh, jump on trains that were stopped and then jump off when they started because I got scared but I wanted to be Gary Snyder (laughs) Um, and um, I had an uncle who I asked once uh, what's a bardo which I had heard about uh, from another Gary Snyder poem and um, he told me that a bardo is basically a spiritual sphincter and that when you die, you have to, like, squeeze through it <laughs> get into the next. And I just, I could smell it, you know, <laughs> when he said that. And, uh, and then I got obsessed with Tibetan Book of the Dead at the time and uh, what bardos were. So here's Gary Snyder's uh, recent, a very recent poem uh, from a few years ago called Waiting for a Ride. Standing at the baggage, passing time. Austin, Texas Airport. My ride hasn't come yet. My former wife is making websites from her home. One son is seldom seen. The other one and his wife have a boy and a girl of their own. My wife and stepdaughter are spending weekdays in town so she can get to high school. My mother, 96 still lives alone and she's in town too always gets her sanity back just barely in time my former former wife has become a unique poet most of my own work such as it is is done full moon was october second this year i ate a moon cake and slept out on the deck white light beaming through the black bows of the pine owl hoots and rattling antlers Castor and Pollux rising strong. It's good to know that the pole star drifts. That even our present night sky slips away. Not that I'll see it. Or maybe I will, much later. Some far time walking the spirit path in the sky. That long walk of spirits, where you fall right back into the narrow, painful passageway of the bardo. Squeeze your little skull and there you are again, waiting for your ride.
2: Well, um, after Michael gave us this, um, this task, which was quite um, large, which <laughs> to find poems. Um, That talked about why why do we need art or why is art part of a spiritual practice is how I interpreted it (laughs) and and um, so it was so interesting trying to find the articulation of how art was completely for me connected with a spiritual practice and my connection to that and so. I already had the experience of that and finding the articulation was, was um, the, the journey of, over the last couple of weeks and this is um, to this poem by Adam Zagajewski. he's a Polish poet. I don't even know the title. Um, Only in the beauty created by others is there consolation. In the music of others and in others' poems Only others save us Even though solitude tastes like opium The others are not hell If you see them early With their foreheads pure Cleansed by dreams That is why I wonder What word should be used He or you Every he Is a betrayal of a certain you But in return someone else's poem Offers the fidelity of a sober dialogue And I was reading an interview with Adam Zagajewski afterwards, and he was he was talking about beauty, and I think about art, and I think about um, that connection where art and spirit and all those things are the same thing. And he says, of beauty, I think it catapults us up to a higher layer of atmosphere, and I think that that's um, really what, what art does for me is in, in one kind of hyperlink or like one um, quantum leap maybe there's this catapult action. Um, and so I have a bunch more poems about, or a bunch more writings about beauty and how it works,
1: I think. I have a couple poems that might be a good response to that <laughs> one. Um I think I'll I think I'll read Anne Carson. Um, I'm not even gonna say anything. I'm just gonna mm-hmm. I'm just gonna go. <clears throat> First Chaldaic Oracle. There is something you should know, and the right way to know it is by a cherrying of your mind. Because if you press your mind towards it and try to know that thing, as you know a thing, you will not know it. It comes out of red with kills on both sides. It is scrap. It is nightly. It kings your mind. No. Scorch is not the way to know that thing you must know. But use the hum of your wound and flame pit out everything, right to the edge of that thing you should know. The way to know it is not by staring hard, but keep chiseled, keep progging the eye of your soul and reach, mind empty, towards that thing you should know, until you get it, that thing you should know. Because it is out there, orchid outside your end it is
0: i can't believe i'm going to read a poem that i've written but i'm going to read a poem that i've written i wrote this during h1n1 <laughs> last week <clears throat> Uh, the title of the poem is Matters. Unedited. <laughs> in the middle, the only thing important is in the end. In the beginning, the only thing in the middle, the only thing really in the middle, in the start, and in the middle, the only thing important is the tenderness nothing matters in the end but the tenderness the affection in the middle rough in the raw in the middle it's the affection the indiscriminate the case of the ending the love without brackets the end of the start and in the middle the only thing is the tenderness the affection the navel the heart the beginning The beginning is always all beginning, with ending in the middle. When you end in the middle, you begin, and begin tenderness in the end. The only thing ending is this.
2: We didn't have any idea what we were going to read, and so,
0: of course, now I'm thinking of all these poems.
2: Um, But it's kind of fun getting to just put them together, what we have brought. Um, I thought I would read this piece that I think speaks to um, the Anne Carson poem and about that thing you should know that um, that you don't know. Um, It's by Mary Ruflae, it's called Lullaby. My inability to express myself is astounding. It is not curious or even faintly interesting, but like some fathomless sum, a number, a number the sum of equally fathomless numbers, each one the sole representative of an ever-ripening infinity that will never reach the weight required by the sun to fall. There is nothing on the ground to pick up and examine, it is too far back among the leaves to reach, and here I am, walking idly, passing it from below, with only a faint breeze to remind me there is anything there, the merest rustle of which quiets me down to the point I am able to sleep at all.
1: Um, <clears throat> to say, this uh, this piece is about writer's block, I think. Um, but I'm going to read it anyway because so often, so often when I come to Center of Gravity and I listen to Michael Talks, I am in the middle of some struggle with the piece that I'm working on, and so much of the talk is uh, res- responds to my struggle with writing, and I think that it would work the other way around as well. I hope so, anyway. This is a, a piece by Sheila Hetty called Mid-October Day, but let's just say <clears throat> mid-November evening. There are many machines in the world So now we know something about machines. (laughs) They are what we like best, until they fail us, and until we can figure out why they have failed us. There is nothing more frustrating than a machine. It is not that the power cord is unplugged. It's not that we've spilled Gatorade all over it. Everything in a machine must be doing its little private job if the whole machine is to be doing its single job, which is perhaps to turn out a bottle of Coke, or perhaps to let us send and receive emails or perhaps to suck up dust and condoms from the carpet or to turn out $10 bills. A person who works at an office is like one part of the vacuum cleaner or one part of the machine that turns out 6,000 bottles of coke a minute, and so it is important that they work. But when when what needs to be made is a story, then the machine is one person, and if the hands are able, and if the brain is not asleep, and if there is no writing coming out, then one must detect what is wrong. One thought is that we were, strong, we were wrong about this machine. We thought it was supposed to make books, but that was just vanity. It was to make children, or a fool of itself, or nothing at all, just to lie down on the sidewalk and die. I have gone into myself tinkering and come out with nothing, no answers. I have not been able to find the element that is off, but to spend so long aware that every part must be working properly, and to not know what the parts are, or what is properly. This is a strange maintenance job. Motto, to work crookedly then, to spit dust onto the carpet, to produce cars with three wheels, for the coke to be on the outside and the bottle on the inside.
0: This is a poem by uh, W.S. Merwin, who is known, I think, more as a translator than as a poet, but he's one of my favorite poets. And, um, <clears throat> this is a poem called Thanks. Listen. With the night falling, we are saying thank you. We are stopping on the bridges to bow from the railings. We are running out of the glass rooms with our mouths full of food to look at the sky and say thank you. We are standing by the water thanking it, smiling by the windows looking out in our directions. Back from a series of hospitals, back from a mugging. After the funeral, we say thank you. After the news of the dead, whether or not we knew them, we are saying thank you. Over telephones, we are saying thank you. In doorways and in the backs of cars and in elevators, remembering wars and the police at the door and the beatings on the stairs, we are saying thank you. In the banks we are saying thank you. In the faces of the officials and the rich and of all who will never change, we go on saying thank you, thank you. With the animals dying around us, Our lost feelings, we are saying thank you. With the forests falling faster than the minutes of our lives, we are saying thank you. With the words going out like cells of a brain, with the cities growing over us, we are saying thank you faster and faster. With nobody listening, we are saying thank you. We are saying thank you and waving, dark though it is.
2: doesn't have to be the blue iris. It could be weeds in a vacant lot, or a few small stones. Just pay attention, then patch a few words together and don't try to make them elaborate. This isn't a contest, but the doorway into thanks, a silence in which another voice may speak.
0: So I would like to just take a deep breath, and why don't we all just stand up and just stretch our arms. Don't forget about them. Your spine, saying thank you. Mm -hmm. All right. Let's keep going.
1: Perfectly clear. This is Gwendolyn McMurray. I've never written anything because it is a poem. This is a mistake you always make about me, a dangerous mistake. I promise you I'm not writing this because it is a poem. You suspect this is a posture or an act. I'm sorry to tell you that it is not an act. You actually think I care if this poem gets off the ground or not. Well, I don't care if this poem gets off the ground or not. And neither should you. All I have ever cared about, and all you should ever care about, is what happens when you lift your eyes from this page. Do not think for one minute it is the poem that matters. It is not the poem that matters. You can shove the poem. What matters is what is out there in the large dark and in the long night, breathing.
0: How fun to respond to that! <laughs> It's written so small, <laughs> This is uh, called From an Atlas of the Difficult World, um, which is um, uh, Adrian Rich, Mid-Career. One of the few poems she wasn't just talking about women in. <laughs> I know you are reading this poem late before leaving your office. Of the one intense yellow lamp spot in the darkening window in the lassitude of a building faded to quiet long after rush hour. I know you are reading this poem standing up in a bookstore, far from the ocean on a gray day of early spring, faint flakes driven across the plains, enormous spaces around you. I know you are reading this poem in a room where too much has happened for you to bear, where the bedclothes lie in stagnant coils on the bed, and the open vase speaks of flight, but you cannot leave yet. I know you are reading this poem as the underground train loses momentum, and before running up the spares towards a new kind of love, your life has never allowed. I know you are reading this poem by the light of the television screen, where soundless images jerk and slide while you wait for the newscast from the Intifada. I know you are reading this poem in a waiting room, of eyes met and unmeeting, of identity with strangers. I know you're reading this poem by fluorescent light in the boredom and fatigue of the young who are counted out, count themselves out, at too early an age. I know you're reading this poem through your failing sight, the thick lens enlarging these letters beyond all meaning, yet you read on because even the alphabet is precious. I I know you are reading this poem as you pace beside the stove warming milk, a crying child on your shoulder, a book in your hand, because life is short and you too are thirsty. I know you are reading this poem which is not in your language, guessing at some words while others keep you reading, and I want to know which words they are. I know you are reading this poem listening for something, torn between bitterness and hope, turning back once again to the task you cannot refuse. I know you are reading this poem because there's nothing left to read. There, where you have landed, stripped as you are.
2: I feel like we're piecing together a really long (laughs) long, um, poetic sutra. kept watch, except for all of us. We made human chains, we wrote operas, we conducted interviews and released the data. We started smoking again, bought up everything we could just to stop it. It didn't stop. We found hope anyway, then lost the case, we lay on our backs and just floated. We saw nine species a day go extinct, we did not want to be people. We were tired of talking, we started singing, we said, maybe it's over. We delivered a formal apology to the salmon. We did a controversial pregnant photo shoot in front of a nuclear reactor. All those nice curves. We made page 15 of the New York Times. Okay. We delighted in the letters to the editor that said I was going to give my baby cancer. Well exactly. Then we got scared and moved somewhere clean because we could. We dressed him in corn silk and bought a car and drove him around in it singing because it was the only thing that made him stop crying. We wondered where all that grief came from, we. Okay.
1: It's a nice, uh... <clears throat> it's a good Theo says, How do you tell a baby what sharp means? It's easier with hot. You can feel it. He can't feel a knife until it cuts you. His baby is in our living room, learning how to walk. He crawls under the glass-topped coffee table and stands up, hitting his head underneath. He falls. In a minute, he's up again, hits his head, falls down. This happens three times. The sound of his head on the glass is a ringing baritone bell. He's done this before. If this is how we learn to be human, Theo tells me, I'm embarrassed for all of us.
0: Atomic Dawn, Gary Snyder. The day I first climbed Mount St. Helens was August 13, 1945. Spirit Lake was far from the cities of the valley and the news came slow. Though the first atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, August 6, and the second dropped on Nagasaki, August 9th, photographs didn't appear in the Portland Oregonian, until August 12th. Those papers must have been driven into Spirit Lake on the 13th. Early the morning of the 14th, I walked over to the lodge to check the bulletin board. There were whole pages of the paper pinned up, photos of a blasted city from the air, estimate of 150,000 dead in Hiroshima alone. The American scientist quoted, saying, Nothing will grow there again for 70 years. The morning sun on my shoulders, the fir forest smell and the big tree shadows, feet in thin moccasins feeling the ground, and my heart still one with the snow peak mountain at my back. Horrified, blaming scientists and politicians and the governments of the world, I swore a vow to myself, something like by the purity and beauty and permanence of Mount St. Helens I will fight against this cruel destructive power and those who would seek to use it for the rest of my life.
2: This is Some Functions of the Leaf by Adam Kai. Some functions of the leaf. To whisper, to applaud the wind, and hide the hermit thrush. To catch the light, and work the humble spell of photosynthesis. Excuse me, sir, if I might have one word, by which it's changed to wood. To wait, willing to feed, and to be food. To die with style, as the tree retreats inside itself, shutting off the valves at at its extremities, to starve in technicolor, then having served two hours in a children's leaf pile, slowly stir its vitamins into the earth, to be the artist of mortality.
0: be a round of death poems <laughs> let's just finish it off with death poem. but is that, is
2: that the bridge between art and death at yeah sense? yeah. Well,
0: I, have, I have some death of course you have some death <laughs>
1: <laughs> but first Annie Dillard <laughs> um another short prosy piece and um it's from an essay by Annie Dillard uh called Total Eclipse and what I will say before I read it is that she has just spent several um, pages in excruciating detail describing what it feels like for her, um, what it felt like for her to watch a total solar eclipse. Um, at this stage in the essay, she's completely speechless. She's she hasn't written the essay yet, and she's wondering what on earth, how she's going to articulate this un unnameable, unknowable feeling. We teach our children one thing only, as we were taught, to wake up. We teach our children to look alive there, to join by words and activities the life of human culture on the planet's crust. As adults, we are almost all adept at waking up. We have so mastered the transition, we have forgotten we ever learned it. Yet it is a transition we make a hundred times a day, as, like so many willless dolphins, we plunge and surface, lapse and emerge we live half our waking lives and all of our sleeping lives in some private useless and insensible waters we never mention or recall useless i say valueless i might add until someone hauls their wealth up to the surface and into the wide awake city in a form that people can use
0: um in, or, in order to read uh, the next poem, I have to give you a little background to this. To, to read a poem or to parachute in a poem from uh, my favorite Japanese poets. There's some background required because they they feed off each other. And uh, I want to read a poem from Isa, but Isa was very inspired by Basho, who most of you have heard me talk about endlessly. And um, Basho... Uh, didn't write a lot of poems about death, um, but here is one of the very few poems he wrote about death uh, and dying. Basho, for those of you who don't know, uh, is the person who is known for inventing the haiku uh, mode. Nothing in the cry of the cicadas suggests they are about to die. I'll read it again. (laughs) Nothing in the cry of the cicadas suggests they are about to die. A century after uh, Basho um, lived, um, uh, someone came along on his heels named Isa. um, And Isa had a rough life. Um, The only part I'll tell you about to make this short is that um, he got married when he turned 50 and then had three kids in a row and each child died before they turned one so you can imagine um, what Isa wrote about Um, but he was really wanting to write in response to Basho and um, so um, when he was 53 um, his daughter died this is the third one in a row each lived to a year, almost a year And uh, the day his daughter died, he wrote this poem uh, using the theme of dew, which I'll talk about after um, I read you the poem. The world of dew is the world of dew, and yet, and yet. I'll read it again. The world of dew is the world of dew. And yet, and yet... Dew is the truth. Um, For those of you that hear me read these poems all the time, you know that so many poems that came out of Japan deal with dew. Partly because it's what happens in the morning, there's dew, and uh, you know, you don't have to live in Japan to know that dew is there every morning and then it's gone in an hour. And um, so Basho used to write a lot about dew, and um, Issa picked up this theme. And um, Issa has these tensions in his poem where he talks about impermanence and you can't tell if he's accepting impermanence or tortured by impermanence I'll read it one more time (laughs) the world of dew is the world of dew and yet and yet
2: I I will, to follow that, just read some haiku um, blank quotes that I found when I was looking for poems for tonight. Um, The first is from Tim Lilburn. (laughs) We are lonely for where we are. Poetry helps us Mm -hmm. cope. We are lonely for where we are. Poetry helps us cope. And the other is is from Mary Rufle again. There is nothing definite about you, but you happen in detail. There is nothing definite about you, but you happen in detail.
1: For Sharon Waltz
0: now.
1: <laughs> um this is I go back to May nineteen thirty seven, Sharon Olds. I see them standing at the formal gates of their colleges. I see my father strolling out under the ochre sandstone arch, the red tiles glinting like bent plates of blood behind his head. I see my mother with a few light books at her hip standing at the pillar made of tiny bricks, with the wrought iron gate still open behind her, its sword tips black in the May air. They are about to graduate. They are about to get married. They are kids. They are dumb. All they know is they are innocent. They would never hurt anybody. I want to go up to them and say, stop. Don't do it. She's the wrong woman. He's the wrong man. You're going to do things you cannot imagine you would ever do. You're going to do bad things to children. You're going to suffer in ways you never heard of. You're going to want to die. I want to go up to them there in the late May sunlight and say it, her hungry, pretty, blank face turning to me, her pitiful, beautiful, untouched body, his arrogant, handsome, blind face turning to me, his pitiful, beautiful, untouched body. But I don't do it. I want to live. I take them up like the male and female paper dolls and bang them together at the hips like chips of flint, as if to strike sparks from them, I say, "Do what you're going to do, and I will tell about it."
0: It's hard to read after. I know, <laughs> I Sorry. I I heard Sharon olds read once in California, and um, I I went up to her after, and I was just so moved by her poems, and uh, and I just said, "Oh, that." That was. She's so clumsy and shy, and she can barely read her poems in public. And uh, so I went up to her, and she was so small. And I said, uh, "Those were just such amazing poems." And um, she held my hand. She said, "Do you think so?" <laughs> and this was when she was the poet laureate of New York State. <laughs> Anyways, um, I actually don't really like beat poetry, um, but I love the beat poets. And, uh, and when I was a kid, that, I just wanted to be one of them. And um, so I had like a rucksack, and like, you know. I just walked along the railroad tracks and um, pretended I wasn't Jewish. And then I discovered Allen Ginsberg. And I was like, oh, it's OK to be Jewish. <laughs> And um, I first encountered this as a written poem. And then uh, one day I was watching an interview with Allen Ginsberg, and um, this was just before he died. And uh, it's just one of those prophetic moments sometimes before somebody's going to die when they're quite vulnerable, you know, and a little shaky. And... um, the interviewer uh, said to him, um, is there anything, if you imagine that this was your last interview, um, is there something that you'd like to end with? And he sang this poem. And uh, so I don't sing, but I'm going to try. And uh, I'm going to sing you this poem. Uh, It's called Father Death Blues. Oh, and later I learned that he actually originally sang this poem and he made it up on the spot so it's one of his many unedited poems <laughs> hey father death I'm flying home hey poor man you're all alone hey old daddy I know where I'm going father death don't cry no more mama's there Underneath the floor Brother Death, please mind the store Old Auntie Death, don't hide your bones Old Uncle Death, I hear your groans O Sister Death, how sweet your moans O Children Death, go breathe your breaths Sobbing breasts will ease your death Pain is gone, tears take the rest Genius death, your art is done. Lover death, your body's gone. Father death, I'm coming home. Guru death, your words are true. Teacher death, I do thank you for inspiring me to sing these blues. Buddha death, I wake with you. Dharma death, your mind is new sangha death we'll work it through suffering is what was born ignorance made me forlorn tearful (coughs) truths I cannot scorn father breath once more farewell birth you gave was no thing ill my heart is still as time will tell
2: I think most of my favorite poets lately are not, like, writing in a literary poetic form. Um, One of my favorite poets is is an artist called Francis Alice, Um, and he does things like walk, just walk through cities. Um, Maybe one time he did it where he just um, tied the end of uh, the piece of yarn of his sweater and just walked and walked until the entire thing was completely unraveled. And he did another walk where he um, started with a huge block of ice, and it was called, it was called, sometimes when I do something, it leads to nothing. And he just pushed, he just pushed this block of ice until it was a little wet spot, and then it was gone. Um, <laughs> and, so, and then I found this poem that reminded me of, of that, and of um, Ginsberg's poem. That I actually had decided not to read, but now I have to find it. um, It's called, it's by Mary Ruflade, again. I (laughs) quite love her right now. Um, It's called Lines Written on a Blank Space. I lifted the sponge and touched the soap. Would it be gone by September? It had been my closest companion. It knew me well. I felt about it the same though we never spoke, and I did not know where it came from before I found it. All the while I was walking, it sat in the dark room, where white light came in through the lace curtains, and when I came back from my walk, with the smell of wet, chopped wood, being dragged over pine needles, clinging to my clothes, my hair, it was there, only smaller, imperceptibly smaller, which is the way it was made to grow, by getting smaller. And if this be the point where soap begins, how can I say it will not keep growing after it goes away? I lifted the soap. I lifted my long, terrible arm and turned on the water.
0: Well, you the last this
1: is the last one? Oh, but I had a <clears be throat> This is good. This is good. Um, I hope I make it through. Usually, this poem makes me cry when I read it, but I think I'll be able to make it through. Or cough. Uh, It's a poem by Jack Gilbert called "Alone." I never thought Michiko would come back after she died, but if she did, I knew it would be as a lady in a long white dress. It is strange that she has returned as somebody's Dalmatian. (laughs) I meet the man walking her on a leash almost every week. He says good morning and I stoop down to calm her. He said once that she was never like that with other people. Sometimes she is tethered on their lawn when I go by. If nobody is around, I sit on the grass. When she finally quiets, she puts her head in my lap and we watch each other's eyes as I whisper in her soft ears. She cares nothing about the mystery. She likes it best when I touch her head and tell her small things about my days and our friends. That makes her happy the way it always did.
0: Poems make me happy the way they always did. <laughs> Does anybody have anything they want to say before we finish? Just thank you for this. This was really. So thank you to Sarah and Aaron. Aaron has uh, a book published.
2: No, hopefully someday. Hopefully
0: someday, but there is something bound that people can find if they bug you.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs>
0: Sarah teaches amazing writing classes in the neighborhood, and um, also has a, a book uh, being published and. Is being featured in the next Walrus? March Walrus. March Walrus magazine. Um, Let's finish chanting. Life and death are of supreme importance.
1: Life and death are of supreme importance.
0: Time passes swiftly, and opportunity is lost. Time passes swiftly, and opportunity is lost. Let us awaken. Let us awaken. 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 Do not squander your life. Do not squander your life. May all beings be happy. May all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be
1: healthy.
0: May all beings be safe and free from danger. May all beings be safe and free from danger. May all beings be free of their ancient and twisted karma. May all beings be free of their ancient and twisted karma. May all beings be free from every form of restlessness. May May all beings be free from every form of restlessness. Namaste.
1: Namaste.
0: Namaste.